everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 60 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'm your host today. If this is your first episode that you're listening to, then welcome. And if you're joining us again, thank you so much for coming back. So today's episode, we will be thinking about a few bills that are being passed this year in 2022, especially the Nationality and Borders Bill, um, and thinking about what it really means. But it would be silly for me not to mention some of the other bills that this government are trying to push through. Now, with the Nationality and Borders Bill especially, it follows a long trajectory of immigration bills in this country, starting with the 1905 Aliens Act that we've spoken about before on this podcast. And... I just wanted to reiterate from the very beginning that this Immigration Act is a continuation of Immigration Acts that have been passed in the past, and especially the 1981 Nationality Act, which is the last kind of big piece of legislation we've had about immigration. Now, this bill hasn't been fully passed yet. It's it's currently in the stages of being in the House of Lords. This past weekend, the 15th of Jan 2022, if you're listening in the future, um, there were protests all across the UK um, about the police crime and sentence, police crime sentencing and courts bill, which essentially in the main would make peaceful protests punishable by time in jail, um, as well as criminalising people's right to, um, yeah, protest essentially being the kind of biggest headline one. Also increasing police powers on the streets so that they're able to stop and search anyone without any kind of suspicion. Um, giving them more powers to stop vehicles um, at the time of protests. There's really vague language about locking on in protests and having kind of equipment that could suggest you were about to lock on to a public building or public space. Um, I think following the Extinct Rebellion protests, Black Lives Matter protests and then Insulate Britain and some of the work that they've been doing over the past um, few months and years, I feel like this is a kind of a pushback towards that but essentially in ways it's really kind of ending freedom of speech and this bill has been described in so many ways but draconian is probably the best one that I've seen to describe it and I was at the protests at the weekend and uh, Labour peer Shami Shakobati was speaking um, and I'll give you a quote of what she said uh, which has been widely reported in the press but um, she said the bill's anti-protest provisions and I quote represent the greatest attack on peaceful dissent in living memory. Um, she said, this government bangs on about free speech and whinges about cancel culture and other countries where fundamental rights are under attack. For example, um, China or North Korea or Russia. Um, the rhetoric in this country is that, oh, these countries have it so bad, they have no freedom of speech, there's censorship and all this other stuff. However, They are literally clamping down on people's rights to freedom of speech in this country with this bill. She goes on to say free speech is a two way street. And you know what? The ultimate cancel culture, it doesn't come with a tweet. It comes with a police baton and a prison sentence for nonviolent dissent. So a peaceful protest can land you in prison for a very long time. Um, And, you know, people came out in full force to say absolutely not, because at the end of the day, You know, you're not always going to have the party that you necessarily voted for. And you might not be in 
a country where the government that you want is in power. And that's fine. Like, that's just democracy. However, the fact that you then can't protest or take to the streets to show your support for causes or to show your aggravation at maybe certain bills or laws that have been passed or things that have happened just suggests that there isn't really any democracy taking place because the right to protest, um, I think it's Martin Luther King said it, protest is the voice of the unheard. And I think to literally remove that is a bit ridiculous, especially with some of the terminology used in the bill. Now, I went to this protest and planned to do an episode on another bill, one of five actually that are being passed through this year. So that's all I'm going to say about the police crime and sentencing and courts bill, but I do think you should read more about it um, if you can and put pressure on your local MPs, um, although I know it's gone past the House of Commons stage, but you know, make some noise about this because soon we won't be able to make any noise about anything anymore. Um, And that's very scary. So the other bills that are kind of being pushed through um, at different stages are the elections bill, which could change who is and isn't allowed to vote. Um, I think it means in its broadest sense that a lot of everyone will need ID to vote, which is going to actually um, disenfranchise uh, the poorest parts of society that might not be able to afford ID. Um, it's going to disenfranchise certain demographics of people that might struggle with the system of getting ID, even if they can, um, the older generation, that is. Um, And so, yeah, that's not looking fantastic, especially when you, like, team that together with the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill and then the Nationality and Borders Bill, which is what we're going to speak about today, which is going to look at, um, you know, who can enter the UK and how. Um, it's going to see people stripped of their British citizenship without warning. Um, there's the health and care bill, which is going to look at restructuring the NHS. And the online harms bill, which could also change the way we see the internet. Um, so that's five bills coming in that are being at various stages. Um, House of Commons, House of Lords are in talks and conversations at the minute. And because um, the Tories have a majority in the House of Commons... A lot of these things are being voted in quite quickly um, and with little um, like pushback because Labour just don't have the numbers for it and, in my opinion, don't have the leadership for it either, but that's another debate for another day. So, we briefly spoke about the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill and now this episode is about the Nationality and Borders Bill because immigration is obviously a topic that features prominently on this podcast and... I just wanted to kind of let you know what's going on with that um, because in ways it's not through yet. Yes, it's very close to being through, but there is still time to kind of do something about this potentially. Um, And I just wanted to make you aware. So the structure of today's episode, we're going to look at the bill itself, uh, what it's proposing, where it is. Um, We're going to look at a few points about seeking asylum Then we're going to look at clause nine, which is a big clause that um, I have a very big problem with and a lot of other people do as well. Um, And then we're going to look back to some protests that happened earlier in January um, and what a lot of prominent people within immigration spaces, charity work and in politics had to say about it. Um, And then, yeah, that will be the episode. And hopefully you will know everything you need to know about this bill that the UK government is trying to pass through right now. So the Nationality and Borders Bill, currently um, in the stage of being in the House of Lords, the long title of this bill, uh, being kind of spearheaded by Priti Patel, Home Secretary, 
Um, it is the long title. Make provisions about nationality, asylum and immigration. To make provision about victims of slavery or human trafficking. To provide a power for tribunals to charge participants where their behaviour has wasted the tribunal's resources and for connected purposes. So, you know, in, in short or long, shall we say, because it's a long title, um, it seems to be quite vague um, and quite um, like a good thing. Like, yeah, we're going to make, you know, help the victims of slavery and human trafficking. Um, it's going to make some provisions about nationality, asylum and immigration. Um, and, you know, it's going to stop people wasting tribunal resources, um, applying for a variety of kinds of statuses in the UK, whether that be asylum or a refugee status, etc. Um so this bill, it started in the House of Commons, as it does. There's a first reading, a second reading, a committee stage, a report stage and a third reading. Um, and it's gone through all of those. So all one, two, three, four, five, six of those stages. It's five. The first reading, second reading, committee stage, report stage and third reading. So now it's in the House of Lords and it has to go through the same process. So it's past the first and second reading and is at committee stage which means there's only two stages, report stage and the third reading. Then it goes into final stages. Um, then it has to go through consideration of amendments and then it's passed by royal assent and then it's law and we have to follow it, um, which is scary to me because the fact that it was voted in in the House of Commons alone, it's not surprising, but it's scary. Um, now, the M- uh, MPs gave it a third reading and... Uh, the votes for were 298 and the votes against were 231. So it passed with a majority of 67, which obviously isn't a huge majority, but it's big enough. Um, It picks up where the 1981 Nationality Act leaves off. If you haven't listened to that episode um, about immigration and about nationality, then I would suggest you do that because it really does track the um, history of immigration in this country very well, even if I do say so myself. Um, And it takes you all the way back to 1905. And I'm just going to figure out what episode that was. Um, I think that episode was going to be around 50 or 50 something, maybe not. 46, there we go. Britain's Immigration Crisis, episode number 46 um, on the History Hotline. Um, And on that episode, if I remember rightly, I said that all of these acts that have come before are part of a bigger, bigger history of immigration. And this new act is literally slotting right into perfect place, um, picking up where the 1981 Act leaves off. And it literally quotes um, the 1981 Act and says, like, where the 1981 National Act said this, this new bill suggests this instead. Um, now, the bill is very long, actually, Um and I, I tried to read all of it, but 120 pages, um, it was never really going to happen. Um, available on uh, government websites, and you can download that and read that. So, I mean, I wouldn't suggest you read all of it, but take newspaper articles with a pinch of salt when they're writing about this bill, because, you know, a lot of them are saying what they want to say, and not necessarily an unbiased opinion. But we know that newspapers have never been unbiased. So, the issue with this act, there are so many. Asylum, refugees, how they'll be treated, people coming in on small boats, 
Um, it's, that's a big trigger point and, and something that a lot of people have been speaking about with this bill in mind. But Clause 9 is what I want to talk about, following on from this history of immigration that I've spoken about before. The points on asylum, they are obviously important, hugely important. Um, but I'm not going to devote this episode to them. I'm, we will talk about them, though. But I think this Clause 9 is a scary one for me. Obviously, the points on asylum are also scary. But um, this episode, it can't focus on everything, otherwise we would be genuinely be here all year because it's a 120-page document. Um, now, Clause 9 in the bill exempts the government from giving notice if it is not, and I quote, reasonably practicable to do so or in the interest of national security, diplomatic relations or is otherwise in public interest. Meaning that if the government want to take your citizenship, they do not have to give you notice if it's not practicable or in the interest of national security. Understandable that if it's not in the interest of national security. Um, but what does that mean? Who gets to decide what's in the best interest of national security? When we already know there's systems of racism, Islamophobia, um, within the government and within the, the people that make these laws. So how do we know <laughs> what is genuinely in the interest of national security and what is just a black or brown person? that the government don't really like and that's scary that these are the scary bits the vague language the subjectivity of it all that's what will be scary um and also just the general racism of it all i can't call a spade a spade you know it is what it is um so that's a scary bit which we're going to get to in a sec but i think it's important to talk about the points on seeking asylum because it is just as important you know There are people out there in the world that need to leave the countries that they're in for threats to their safety, their families, their lives. And this country is a safe space for so many groups of people. And to deny people the right to come here when their lives are literally in danger is criminal to me. It's disgusting. And... This is what this new act is going to do. So, ministers are saying that the new legislation aims to make the asylum system fairer, to protect those in genuine need, deter illegal entry to the UK and remove asylum seekers who have no legal right to be here. Now, what is illegal entry to the UK? What does that even mean? Another term that's like, who decides what's illegal? It's essentially going to criminalise people that travel over, maybe in small boats, maybe in by the means, without necessarily the correct documents um, or documents at all. If they're fleeing a war zone, I don't expect them to have all their paperwork with them. Um, they're coming to the UK to seek asylum. You know, you can't, how, how can that translate into coming illegally? And this process then is going to be criminalised. So you can get up to four years in prison if you arrive in the UK illegally. But you don't, you can't be illegal, you can't arrive in the UK illegally if you're seeking asylum. It's only when your asylum claim is rejected. So you'd have to go through the whole system of arriving in this country, seeking asylum, being called illegal, then seeking asylum and then being rejected or accepted for this asylum claim. And then based on that, whether you're here illegally or not, 
and then you might get deported back to the place that you've run from. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, it also includes a clause about the UK being able to send asylum seekers to a safe third country, as in Britain going, actually, you know, we don't want you here, you can't just go somewhere else, um, which might be another European country, most likely, because they're in the vicinity. Um, and also to submit claims at a designated place determined by the Secretary of State. Um, basically, officials kind of believe that the bill gives the potential to allow for offshore processing centres, so um, places to process these people outside of the UK, offshore, um, to be set up overseas like Australia do, um, similar policies there. Which is really funny to me because the tennis player, Novak Djokovic, who hasn't been vaccinated, I believe, and is trying to obviously enter Australia, has entered Australia um, to play tennis in the Australian Open, and they've said no. You haven't got the right medical exemptions or whatever. I don't really know what's true and what's false. I'm just explaining what I know. And this man has been, you know... So many people have stood up in support of him. One of the most notable being Nigel Farage. Who loves this system of, um, you know, Australian policies. Because it's what they've campaigned for to have in this country oh yeah we should have a point system we shouldn't be letting anyone in everybody and anybody into this country unless they can do something for the economy and contribute to society yet he has got so much to say about what's happening to Djokovic right now with Australia who he was the one champion Australia's policies before um but now it's not working in the favor of should we say a richer whiter person who has status and you know, wealth, it's not okay anymore. And it's very interesting to me to see. But that's, I know that's the whole case with the um, Djokovic's tied up in the vaccine and coronavirus and other things as well. So I don't want to like oversimplify the issues. But just, you know, I wish some people would keep the same energy for these um, restrictive acts that we can see all around the world in different places and in different ways. So... More points on asylum. The bill also gives border force officers power to turn migrants away from the UK whilst at sea. <laughs> Does that, oh gosh, I don't, I don't know for that one. I don't think I need to make a comment, really. Um, it also makes it a criminal offence, as I said, to knowingly arrive in the UK without permission. Again, make it make sense. If you're seeking asylum, where, what, what point do you get permission when a bomb's dropping, when someone has a gun to your head, family's head, like, what what bit do you say, oh, UK, please can you let me in? It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I just feel like this is breaching human rights, like, the right to, to safety. Like, and the worst thing about it is for me is that the majority of these countries that people are fleeing from have had some British Empire involvement in the past that has led to the conflicts today. So really, truly, if Britain had just kept their nose out of people's business and country's business, then you actually wouldn't have an influx of people coming to this country, potentially, if that's what you didn't want, out of the British government, that is. And obviously I know that the people that run the government now weren't here when the British Empire was in place. But this is simply a consequence of that history. And the more we get to understand and know that, then I think the better equipped we would be to deal with the world we're in today. But that's just me. And obviously I think history is 
very important, <laughs> and the route to understanding society a little bit better. Um, Home Secretary says that the bill will tackle illegal immigration and underlyingly poor factors into UK's asylum system. Basically, they're saying that the UK asylum system is too nice and it will stop people coming because they will feel like it's going to be too difficult, so they'll go to a different country instead. Now, I don't really think that's a good good way of dealing with some might call the crisis we are faced with um, personally. Um, and it just feels very scary that people can be turned away in the sea. Because if you're in a sea, in the sea, especially on a small boat maybe, and you've travelled for days, maybe weeks, maybe even longer, and these UK border officials say, absolutely not, you're not coming here, what do you do? And what do you actually do? And it just feels like there's no humanity, no compassion in this bill. And I guess we, we, should, we should expect it with a government like the one we have. Um, do I even need to reference some of the things that have happened in the past 10 years, 11 years of a Tory government? And not to say any party is better, but we've been dealing with austerity, reduced freedoms, more policing um, for the last 10 years and so many cuts to so many important services, mental health services, education. Um, And I think it's kind of now all coming to a head. And I really hope that in the next few years um, there'll be some kind of changes and some of these bills I mentioned earlier won't see the light of day in this country. Now we're on to clause nine, the scary clause. Um, So the new statesman, they did some research um, and this new clause, clause nine um, of this bill, they estimated it would affect the citizenship rights of six million people in England and Wales. Two in every five people from a non-white ethnic minority background will be impacted. Currently... No other country in the world can make its own citizens stateless by depriving them of citizenship without notice. So the UK is setting trends, disgusting trends. They will be the first country that can make its own citizens stateless. Now, we have a precedent for this case. We have Shamima Begum. Whatever you thought about that case and that situation, this essentially, that set of precedents, because she was stripped of her citizenship um, for her involvement in what was happening um, with overseas terrorism. And when she was stripped of her citizenship, her father, who is Bangladeshi, um, Shamima Begum, for context, was born in the UK, born and raised and radicalised in the UK. Um, And she was... They went to... The British um, immigration, whoever people went to Bangladesh and said, can she have citizenship there? Or I don't even think they did that. I think she stripped of her British citizenship and then obviously... So she wasn't stateless. The only other country she could apply for citizenship from would be Bangladesh because that's where her dad is from. And they said, of course not, because she's a terrorist and has been... Well, I don't know, actually. I don't know how it works to call someone a terrorist necessarily, um, but she was involved with um, things that were happening and she left to go to join um, ISIS. And so, yeah, that is what it is. But when she went there... Um, now, on her return, she's she's not allowed British citizenship. And Bangladesh, obviously, don't want to give her citizenship. And in, in ways, why should they? 
because they've literally nothing to do with any of this. She's never had Bangladesh citizenship. Um, and she's, you know, not this whole case is nothing to do with that country. Um, and so this is this is kind of the main thing I don't like about this um, thing, apart from the fact that it's obviously systemically racist. And it's just going to extend that franchise and practice of racism in this country. But I feel like why is Britain pushing the kind of responsibility of undesirable quote-unquote citizens to other countries that they might not have even ever been to like for example then me um if I do something bad depending on how bad and and you know who decides um this court the courts in this country and I lose they strip me on my British citizenship for example and they say okay your grandparents are Jamaican so you can get Jamaican citizenship, you're eligible for that, which I am. Um, why in the world should Jamaica deal with me if I've obviously done committed a crime, seriously? Um, why in the world, <laughs> like, why would, why should Jamaica deal with me? You know, I've, I live in this country, I have lived here all my life, been educated here, I was born here, um, I pay taxes in this country. So surely I should be dealt with with the justice system in this country and yes that that means going to prison or facing trial or prosecution then so be it but I don't understand what like why are you deporting people <laughs> like to where and why should other countries deal with that um when you couple this now with the um the bill that's obviously potentially going to be passed through um on Monday, the 17th, the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill, I was at a protest on the weekend. That's all it could take for me to get deported to a country that I've never lived in. I've visited, seen family there, barely have any family there. So, you know, how does that make any sense? Not to say how is that fair, because I don't really... I just feel like I can hear my parents going, life's not fair, it's never been fair. <laughs> but that doesn't make sense to me. Um... And former Tory minister, David Davis, who has probably been one of the most vocal people about this act um, against it, he said plans to strip people of British British citizenship um, are uncivilised, legally disputable. Like, I just feel like that doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Um, right now, don't get me wrong, you can take citizenship from people um, considered to be a threat to the UK for terrorism, war crimes or if they obtain citizenship fraudulently in the first place, which makes sense in ways. Um, and it just means that where it's not practical, citizens will not be given notice of losing their citizenship. But what does that even mean? Like, you know, they're saying, oh, for example, if like someone like Shamima Begum, if she was like well into a war zone and you just couldn't get the message to her that she lost her citizenship because of whatever reason that is what I believe that's what that means but again it's really vague terminology um but yeah I just feel like pushing you know people that have committed crimes shall we say in the UK and whilst yes it's saying stuff that terrorism war crimes like do we believe enough in our justice system for them to find real terrorists because I don't know like very naive maybe but there's been like a few terror attacks in the UK um like on a smaller scale to to some of the things we used to see 
post 9-11. And it's always been a thing of like, oh yeah, they were being watched by the police and they were on this list of people to watch, but then they do what they did anyway. So, you know, how is that going to work? Is are you, If you're on suspicion of doing something, is it going to take you to do something? And... Yeah, why should other countries then deal with these people that have done these things? Obviously, it would be great to live in a society where everybody is is good, well-behaved and not committing crimes. But that's just not reality. And especially when, you know, you have a long, long history of the government cutting funding to so many integral services that have meant people are turning to whatever they can do to feed themselves, their families. Not to say that terrorism is excusable in any way, shape or form, or crime, more, more broadly, but um, I can see, you You have to kind of see how all of these bills and all of these policies are, are going to intertwine and impact each other. Um, It's very scary to me, very, very scary indeed. And also thinking kind of in the context of the Windrush, I haven't mentioned that yet, but the Windrush scandal saw people being deported because they were said to be illegal immigrants that had been in this country since they were probably under 10 and were in their 60s, 70s and 80s, getting deported to Jamaica, a country they'd not been to since they were babies, that they, yeah, some of them had never left the country um, until they were shipped to um, their quote-unquote new home. Now, with a precedent like that, that was not that long ago. How the government can justify this act is beyond me, um, especially this clause. There are deportation flights that go back to Jamaica, especially and other Caribbean countries, all the time. Deporting people that have committed crimes in the UK and have actually gone to prison for those crimes, but because they are deemed to be obviously undesirable, and the their kind of rights to citizenship have suggested that if they um, commit crime, they can face deportation. They are being deported. Now, if you do a crime and you go to prison in the UK and you serve, you know, the sentence that the judge and jury have, have given to you, why then are you having an extra punishment because you're black or brown? If you are a white British person with citizenship going back and there's no other country that you have citizenship for, you commit a crime in the UK, you go to prison and then you're released. That's the end of the story. Why is it for black and brown people there's now the risk of leaving, being being kicked out of the country, even if you go to prison? Um, and that's what we're seeing and we've been seeing it. There has been so many flights that have gone back to Jamaica Um I just feel like it's insane for Britain to be able to deport people that have already gone to prison. And some cases have been rehabilitated. Like, some of these people that are being, um, like, threatened with deportation have literally maybe committed a crime five years ago. No, let's say ten years ago. Gone to prison for five years. Have, you know, rejoined society, potentially got a job, um, have a family, sorted their lives out, got their stuff together. And now it's like their cases like been flagged by the Home Office with their new hostile um policy and it's like, right, you're going. But like that kind of you know, the the thing that they did that was bad, fair enough, it was a while ago. They have rehabilitated. The quote unquote prison system has worked. Why are they being deported with a family in this country? Um especially when you hear politicians um speak about the black community and say Things like absent fathers are causing 
knife crime and all this nonsense. But you're deporting these fathers um, and these men that have children in this country. There was one of the flights that went out, I think, either last year or 2020. And there must have been, like, I think, oh, I can't remember the number, but it was a ridiculous amount of number of children that would be impacted by the amount of, like, fathers that were being deported or faced with deportation. Um, and I just feel like it's just creating a cycle um, that is going to be unbreakable if this bill comes into power. Now, um, another thing about this um, clause is that, um, yeah, Britain can then deport people that also have not had a chance at trial. Um, it's not always going to be the case that you go to prison and then um, you do your time and then you're deported afterwards. It's going to be like you are on suspicion of doing a crime. You haven't even gone to trial. So the judge and jury haven't found you guilty or not guilty and you're meant to be innocent until proven guilty. Um, and you're just gone. Um, it's shipping off these quote-unquote undesirable people to another country when they've committed crimes in the UK and should be dealt with by the UK justice system, if you ask me. Um, so journalist Ian Dunn um, from the Independence Little Supplement I. Um, the overall effect of this clause is simple, he said. It is designed to prevent people from securing their right to appeal. Um, this is supposedly guaranteed in law. Nothing in the new clause nullifies that. Instead, it makes it impossible by virtue of practical reality. Um, the people being stripped of their citizenship will very often find out when they are trying to return to Britain. They are outside the country. And once you're outside the country, it becomes infinitely more difficult to secure your appeal rights. Sometimes the appeals process takes so long as to be useless, it might time out before someone is even aware action was taken. Nearly every case, that makes it very difficult to secure evidence or instruct lawyers. The government have created a second-tier category of British citizenship, which applies predominantly to ethnic minorities. Um, so interestingly there, Ian Dunn is bringing up the fact that um, you most of the time you actually won't know that your citizenship has been revoked whilst you're in Britain it will happen when you're outside the country for example a lot of the cases um that I've read about about people in the Caribbean have been say for example they've gone back for a family funeral back to the Caribbean that is um and they've tried to now enter the country and like border force have said no you can't and they'll be in the Caribbean um so they're stuck there essentially so they haven't been deported per se but the minute they step out of the country, they cannot now come back. Um, and obviously now to do that appeals process, when you have no family around you potentially, limited maybe money out there, because, you know, you don't normally take all your money when you go on holiday, um, you won't necessarily have be kind of aware of the systems in place. You might not even have a phone and the SIM card in that country. And you go on holiday, you just, you know, go and come back. It's a short thing. Um and so appealing in that process and having access to lawyers and, and people that know the system is going to be a lot more difficult. And he's saying it's going to be infinitely more harder to appeal. Also, for example, if you went out to the Caribbean for a longer period of time, not just a two week holiday, maybe a few months um, and this happened to you, the actual appeal process might actually have timed out because once they serve you, they haven't told you that you've lost your citizenship and say they give you like two months two weeks to appeal or a month I don't know if that's the actual time but you don't know and you aren't you haven't tried to come back in that time your appeal time is timed out before you even knew that this was happening to you that's insane that's absolutely insane um and that is what this government 
are doing. And now for the protests that happened on the 5th of January, or the Wednesday, 2022, um, they're obviously thinking again about the fact that the um, crime, police and sentencing bill is coming in and, um, yeah, protests might be illegal very soon. Um, they had a protest for this bill, the Nationality and Borders Bill, um, but the way that protesters can be criminalised now, that makes that more of a risk. Obviously, these laws haven't been passed yet, just to say, but, you know, thinking ahead. Um, Patrick Vernon, who's a campaigner for the victims of the Windrush scandal, um, told the New Statesman in an article I read, and I quote, Pretty Patel should be sorting out the Windrush scandal right now, rather than creating a piece of legislation that will affect more people and create more Windrush scandals in the years to come. And I think this is very true and my sentiment entirely. Um, there are so many people who were wrongly faced with deportation during the Windrush scandal that still haven't had any compensation. Or if they had, they've been given insulting sums of money. Um, or not even given it. They've just had a, a letter to say, you might get this. They haven't been given it yet. There's been, like, of the money that was set aside, the millions that were set aside for this purpose of um compensating the the victims so many victims have died and so many others have received literally nothing um and you know as patrick vernon says as home secretary she should be sorting all of that out as opposed to creating more winter scandals in years to come and i think he's going to do exactly that like i can't see this clause doing anything but like that to me is scary um Naomi Wimborn Idris, um, Idrissi, sorry, from the Jewish Voice for Labour. She found the bill alarming um, and said it was threatening to people from all ethnic minorities, particularly people of black and brown colour, which we know. Um, and she said something quite interesting, which was, we already know that people in government think that if you're engaged in the sort of activism that I support, Black Lives Matter, Extinct Rebellion, Palestine Action, then you could be classed as a terrorist or a threat. Then, for people whose family background derives from somewhere else in the world, you they will always feel vulnerable. Um, and I think that's quite important. Um, you know, within the system in Britain, it's already a little bit uh, tense <laughs> to be black or brown, maybe. And now this bill is not going to add to any kind of positive feelings, I don't think. Um, clause 9 is still being debated, I will say, in the House of Lords. Campaigners are hopeful that the amendment will be opposed. I'm not sure how I feel. I don't think I feel that positively about it. But, um, yeah, it's just general the general consensus from, I guess, people that I respect and, and listen to is that this is going to, you know, disproportionately impact people from ethnic minority backgrounds, black and brown people, um who have a quote-unquote assumed citizenship outside of the UK, um, it's not really going to impact white people in the same way. Um, and they know that, and I think it will create potentially another Windrush scandal. Now, this is something that's happening right now. You might be listening in the future in, in which you'll know if this bill got passed or not, which is really funny because you might have listened to this whole like 40 minutes of me going on to be like, oh, it's happened anyway. Or it hasn't happened, we hope, we pray. Um, but, you know, it hasn't gone through yet. 
if you know anyone in the House of Lords, just have a chat. <laughs> um, and just make some noise about it, whether that be on social media, whether that be to people that you know in real life. You know, talk about it. Like, let's get conversation going about something like this to stop it. Um, you know, I think we spend so much time and energy about things that don't matter and talking about topics that are so redundant, like whether there's 24 hours in the day or not, and if we all have the same 24 hours. But there are actually, like, really scary things that are happening that will need more than 24 hours to tackle. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And please do your research. Please, um, you know, do what you can. Petitions are going around, I'm sure. I will link some in the description and the show notes um, if I can find any that are active now because it's already in the House of Lords. So I think that it might be past the petition stages. Um, But I had to talk about this as an extension of... Britain's kind of immigration policy in the past and what they are trying to do now but I will leave you with a quote from the CEO of the Runnymede Trust Halima Begum who said I can't see any minority in this country feeling safe about this new bill and Halima I agree thank you so much for listening have a wonderful week goodbye listening to the history hotline if you've enjoyed this episode please tell a friend to tell a friend to continue the conversation about black history head over to our social media platforms at the history hotline on instagram and at the history hl on twitter